0: to Solarpunk Presence, the companion podcast to Solarpunk Futures, hosted by Solarpunk Magazine nonfiction editors extraordinaire Ariel Kroon and Christina Della Rocha. Ariel and I will be using this companion podcast to Solarpunk Futures to explore Solarpunk goings-on in the world today. We'll be interviewing all sorts of interesting people who are doing work in the here and now that will help us get to a Solarpunk future. And we'll be talking to each other about the visions of a sustainable equitable future integral to solar punk and about issues we're curious about within the movement or genre or whatever it is you want to call solar punk. Hello and welcome to episode 9 of Solar Punk Presents. I had a nice discussion with Professor Lisa Dilling of the University of Colorado at Boulder about climate resilience.
1: Here's the episode.
0: Hello Lisa. Uh, thank you for talking to us today.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me, Christina. It's great to talk to you. And um, I'm Lisa Dilling. I'm a professor here at the University of Colorado in Boulder in in the United States. And what I study mostly is climate change and especially how we use scientific information to make decisions and and how that interface works between science and, you know, different kinds of decisions we might make. And, And a decision could be anything. It could be how you decide to, you know, I mean, a decision to carry an umbrella would be like a weather decision, but climate could be lots of different decisions about climate change. Um, But I've been especially studying adaptation policy, also a little bit on carbon management and offsets, like how we manage carbon, try to absorb more carbon into the soils and and the ocean. And before I was a professor, I was, I worked in DC managing science programs. So I know a lot about sort of the science policy decision-making interface, and that tends to drive my work a lot. Right? How to make science kind of more usable for those decisions?
0: No, okay, yeah. So also studying the glacial pace of turning science into climate policy <laughs> and actual action.
1: It's pretty fascinating, and I mean there are moments of real progress, and you can see, wow, that that is different now. You know, people are using that information or. And sometimes you have, like you mentioned glacial progress, but you know how sometimes in the plates you have an earthquake, you have like a shift really quickly. Like the uh, war in Ukraine. Yeah, things happen very quickly. It changes everybody's energy policy. Yes, exactly. So I think, yeah, it's kind of um, one of those things that's, it's not something most people think about, you know, where research and science, like where it comes from and then how it makes its way into the policy practice, you know, sphere, um, but it's actually a pretty fascinating topic, and the and the and finding ways to make that interface work better are it's pretty um, cool because there's lots of ways to do it. It could be on the science side, or it could be on the on the decision side. It could be you know convening workshops. It could be making conversations happen that kind of thing. Um, uh, between between scientists and
0: policymakers or politicians, or scientists and citizens. I mean, not that scientists aren't also citizens.
1: It could be all of those things. Honestly, I mean, uh, it's usually not the really high level, like, you know, politicians meeting scientists, although, you know, those happen in very, very organized ways, like through testimony in Congress and things like that. But oftentimes it's actually like I've had experiences where we go have a workshop in a town um, who's just been experiencing drought, you know, a lot of drought and they are having trouble They've, they've not experienced like sort of the level of drought that they've that they've experienced in a, this now um, in this time, and so they're trying to figure out what to do with it. You know how, how to how to think about this. Like, is this something that's going to keep happening? Is this something they have to prepare more in the future? You know, we can sort of offer a little bit of scientific context and background for their situation and say, yeah, this is what we know about how the atmosphere is changing and how the water cycle is changing increased temperature, like for climate change, what that's doing. You know, therefore, you know, this is what we can say about the propensity, the likelihood of droughts happening more. And so that gives them that little piece of information where they're like, oh, hmm, maybe it's worth it to invest in a, you know, in a second water treatment plant, for example, so that we can use more of the water we have rights to and stuff like that.
0: Okay. So so you actually have municipalities sort of calling you up been asking you to come to workshops, or you arrange workshops and you invite mayors and city planners, or or I mean, how how does this happen?
1: Well, yeah, it's a great question, and I, I've been part of a a group that's like specifically working on this interface of science and decision making, and it tends to be us mostly like on the science side or on the research side, the academic side, trying to reach out to folks in the regular world or the, mm-hmm. you know, not that we're, I mean, we're all in the real world, but, it, but you know, in the non-academic world um, to say, you know, hey, we have, th- this is our mission, really, like trying to bring climate information to people where it can make a difference. And so th- this is a group I was in charge of for like seven years or so, and we we had funding from the federal government to do this work on a regional basis to bring um, people together to kind of use scientific information better in their decisions and so, what we did, actually, for that example I was talking about is we had a we wanted to have some workshops around Colorado to talk to people about how they were thinking about adaptation and how um, what kind of needs they had for information, you know what would make them more you know more resilient in the face of climate change we actually got in contact with people a couple of different ways. Um, one of the ways was through our network of people we'd already been talking to through other projects, you know, so that we would, you know, knew a water manager in a town or we knew somebody knew somebody. And so we were like, Hey, you know, is your town interested in this kind of information? But we also put literally like the ad in the paper kind of a thing where we put an announcement in a, um, in a newsletter for municipalities to say, is any community interested in working with us? to cuz it's quite an effort to have a workshop and we interview people ahead of time and we write a big report at the end for them and help facilitate and so forth so we wanted people to participate who really wanted this you know to happen and we got a couple great communities that were really it was just the right time for them to be engaged in this conversation because they were thinking about what they could do you know next and they had this extra they had these these climate changes that were basically um, manifesting right there, you know, right that year. And so, yeah, so it was, so it goes both ways, but then, but, but it's mostly like kind of a, I guess a long-term building up of relationships most of the time, you know, where you, sometimes people call in, they say, Hey, you know, trying to figure out what this, what these changes mean for my water planning, you know, like, can you help me out? Mm -hmm. Um, or, you know, we might reach out, we say, we want to have some work in the Southwest Colorado, you know, are you interested in working with us? And so we might reach out to them. So it's it works both ways. Okay. So so what kind of climate change manifestations are you having in Colorado? We are in the middle of the country. You know, for your listeners, just picturing it, we're kind of one of the states where the Rocky Mountains goes right through. So we have this really big mountain range in the middle of our state and. So uh, we kind of are in almost two different climate zones when you when you look at, you know, the kind of Eastern half is really dry and then the mountainous half on the West is kind of more of all of the snow. And, and actually really interestingly, the, when you hear about the Colorado River, it's one of our major rivers in the Western US and it provides water to about 42 million people in the oh, West and yeah. the Colorado River starts in Colorado. <laughs> I mean, it's like headwaters are here in Colorado And so the amount of snow that falls in Colorado is super important for water for the rest of the whole Colorado basin, because it basically falls as snow and then melts, you know, and goes into the river and the most of the water is coming from, from this snowpack um, melting. So one of the big changes that we're seeing is with, and this is, this is a pretty robust finding, like, you know, know there's different levels of certainty about what, what might happen in the future. But one of the things we know pretty much for sure is that temperature is rising and it's Mm -hmm. rising here in Colorado. And so if you have snowpack, you know, snow as one of your main (laughs) sources of water, you're very vulnerable to temperature increases. Basically what you're seeing is less snow falling as snow, less precipitation Mm -hmm. falling as snow, more falling as rain. Our, our runoff season starts a bit earlier now, you know, just the seasonality is mm-hmm. changing on that. Okay. Um, so the
0: the mountains are getting less snow and they're, they're not storing
1: it. And we don't have a lot of reservoir. Well, we have reservoirs on the Colorado, for example, but um, it's very dry. The Western U.S. in general, like we don't have big lakes, you know, that are huge reservoirs for the most part. So our it's kind of like our reservoir of water is the snowpack. and and this is true for for us in the Rocky Mountains. and it's true for people who are getting snow like in the Seattle area. You know they, their water comes a lot from the Cascade Mountains, California they get California gets water from here, actually from the Colorado Mm -hmm. river, but they also get water from the Sierra Nevada Mm -hmm. mountains and all of those mountains, you know, are going through the same thing. Mountains worldwide are going through the same thing where this kind of warming trend is making that snowpack more vulnerable. It's just kind of like that storage place we used to have, you know, that cold snowpack Mm -hmm. is just getting a little bit less reliable. And so that's one thing we're seeing already is, you know, our snowpack changing, the form of water changing to be more rain. And we've already adapted quite a lot, obviously, for over the centuries to a dry West, you know, by, by building some reservoirs and conveying water, moving water from mm-hmm. place to place in pipes and things to irrigate fields, things like that. But all of those things we built are geared for a certain type of climate variability, like a certain range of climate um, and water availability. So with this change in climate change, you know, we're kind of learning how to manage that water differently. We we, we don't necessarily have the storage in place. Although, well, I should say, <laughs> one manifestation of this, you asked about like, you know, what are we seeing? If you look along the Colorado River right now, there's several reservoirs, and there's a couple really big reservoirs. Those reservoirs are way down think 30% of what they can normally hold. Mm. And that's been a drought that's been going on for about 20 years now, where this this kind of is hitting the road, the rubber hitting the road, if you will, is, you know, now, now the the federal government that kind of oversees the the management of the Colorado River system is telling states, you know, you need to start thinking about cutbacks, thinking about how to take less water in next year, like very, very soon. And that's that's having a real impact already on agriculture and thinking about you know, how cities might respond and so forth.
0: So I don't know if I should ask you, how do you adapt to that? Or if I should ask you, how do you build climate resilience to that? Because those are two slightly different things, or are they the same thing? Maybe I should just start by asking, what is climate resilience?
1: Yeah, that's and that's something that scholars are Arguing about in the literature, basically, there's a lot of writing about what is climate resilience. Even, but but there's a couple different ways of thinking about it. And one way is to think about it as you know, if you think about human resilience, you know, when you think somebody's resilient, probably you're saying that because they've had, you know, they've had something bad happen to them, but they've bounced back from it. And I mean, that's some one way that people talk about climate resilience is they think about the ability to kind of maintain function, maintain, maintain life, maintain energy access, food access, you know, different kinds of things that we need as a society to live, maintaining that bouncing back to from shocks. So, you know, if something happens, are you able to kind of be resilient and come back, but there's another area of thinking that's saying, well, we don't, we don't really necessarily want to bounce back because we're actually in a changing climate. So, the ground is shifting, you know, underneath us. We don't mm-hmm. want to necessarily bounce back to what what we had before or what we were doing before. Even we really want to think about either the concept of like bouncing forward, like building a different way of being with this changing climate, or people use the word transformation, you know, where it's like actually transforming our relationship with the climate, the environment, you know, the sustaining what is sustaining, you know, our society. But I mean, resilience generally, I think people, you know, can think of it as not trying to get totally knocked down, you know, yeah. by, by say a drought, you know, or a fire yeah. coming. or like, And the so when you ask about adaptation, adaptation might, you might think of as kind of the actions you might take to, to be more resilient in the end. So, okay. you know, I, I think of adaptation as sort of changing the things we're doing or the way we're building or the way we're maybe organizing our our networks and so forth, um, but to be more resilient, to be able to withstand these, these shocks and stresses, but, and maybe not withstand, not just withstand them, but actually build forward and be more forward thinking about mm-hmm. the way we're living. And, and, and I say that also because of the concept of things like justice. I think you've talked about justice before in the program, and there's a lot of situations around the world that are not great right now, like things are resilient, people are resilient, but they're kind of ground down. They're kind of, you know, they're not living in a very equitable situation. They're not living in a very, you know, in a, in a situation that allows them to thrive and really come to their full, you know, human potential. Thinking about resilience, how do we actually build a, a different way of of um, being, you know, living in in concert with the environment and with each other, of course, as people, so that we're not running into these these really big inequities and these really big um problems you know in the way that we've built things that are just not sustainable.
0: Okay. So when you when you have these workshops or you or you meet with people working for city hall as it were um who are probably just I would assume they're more interested in actually adapting to climate change do they want to incorporate this social
1: justice justice aspect into their into their planning? I'm, There are some amazing efforts right now to really build justice in and looking forward. And I I know about one about in terms of the energy transition and sustainability in an urban environment. So I can just mention that um, the city of Denver, which is, you know, just down the road from Boulder, Mm -hmm. like about 30 minutes or so, they have a dedicated team basically working on justice and what that means, not just as a hand wavy topic, but like. What does that mean when you start to think about sustainability in the city? Like what does justice mean? There's actually like some practical things you can do and some things we know, unfortunately, that have already happened. Like you might think, like say greening, you know, greening neighborhoods of put, putting trees into neighborhoods. You know, people talk about the value of having shade trees or helping to cool the urban environment. And when you look at the map though, where trees are existing right now in an urban environment like Denver, they correlate with the richer neighborhoods. Mm. The richer neighborhoods have a lot more trees than the poorer neighborhoods. And so thinking about like things like that, like a strategy of tree planting, for example, thinking about well, where where are you going to do that and how mm-hmm. are you going to make sure that that benefits the people that are the, the most vulnerable to heat, you know? But it and seems like all-
0: kind of a no-brainer, you would think. <laughs> but so, it, I mean, so... There are more trees in the richer neighborhoods because they have bigger yards and they have gardeners and, or because the city planted, I mean, cause there's city owned trees right on the sides of the streets, I presume. And then there's privately owned trees. I mean, is the, is the difference because there's more privately owned trees in the richer
1: areas? That I don't know. I don't know why it is to start with, but I, my guess is that as we know from historical planning, you know, city planning, you know, when a neighborhood gets planned, if it's like a, if it it was the older, more established neighborhood, the, maybe the nicer place to be, you know, the first place that got built upon, they probably were planting trees there, you know, to go along with the houses and so forth that they were building, you know, this the first sort of community that was getting built. And then as more people moved in and more, you know, more city land was established Maybe people weren't as wealthy, or maybe it was just there were less, you know, it's hard and to the know. lots I'm, get I, smaller or because they're yeah, more expensive and now. And I don't know the the reasoning, but you know, there's also been a history of racism in mm-hmm. like redlining and in designating certain neighborhoods as these are going to be the areas that you know we're going to put certain people here and we're going to have like these people living over here. And that correlates as well with green space, you know, mm-hmm. with parks, with with trees and so forth you know, I saw this really interesting study in LA. It was mapping benefits for flood protection and green space and trying to look at where, whether they could put those sort of in the same place. In other words, like Mm -hmm. kind of do double duty with the land they would need. And, but it's not always the same. It's not always where you have a need for flood mitigation isn't necessarily where you might have a need for trees, you know, Mm -hmm. and for planting trees. So you, you have to really look at how it how it factors out. And then what, again, who's the community living there? And and you mentioned also really a really good point, which is who's going to look after the trees. Is it the community's job to look after the trees? Is it the city's job to look after the trees in our area too? As I mentioned about the water water is a big issue to really be careful and think system systems thinking about it. But, you know, there was a study in Detroit I was reading where this community group wanted to bring in, or it was an outside group actually wanted to plant trees but the city residents there were saying, you know, hey, you know, we have trees. But the problem is, you know, the city's supposed to help ma- maintain these trees and, they're, and our sidewalks are broken. Yeah. And our sewers are busted and all of these like infrastructure pieces are not working. We don't have any faith that you're going to actually, you know, these trees are going to survive or, you know, be maintained. I mean, building the trust is also, I mean, this sounds like far but it's actually the core of building a resilient society is having trust among people who are trying to actually build something for the future because right now that trust is broken down in a lot of places and especially in these places where you know ine- inequality is really really big and there's been a history of you know, not caring for all communities equally, not actually giving communities the, you know, the rights that they need and the land that they need and so forth. And so that kind of is still perpetuated. So people we need to understand kind of the baseline, I guess, of where we're coming from on this and then think about how to build build resilience with an equity lens, I guess you would say. But I think, like I say, Denver has this team of people Ooh, hey, they've got the data, you know, so that science into practice is happening. You know, they've looked at these maps and this data, and then they're looking creatively of how to spend the money, you know, to put these kinds of values in. I know there are efforts too on on energy transition things, which are like uh, for example, um, electrifying buildings, so trying mm. to get fossil fuel, like trying to get um methane gas out of buildings so that you know we can reduce our emissions there. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's an issue for a low-income community that isn't going to have the money to just go electrify, you know, with a new heat pump. So the the city is really putting a lot of effort into figuring out, you know, how to make this transition, how to provide the funding, provide the support, the contractors, you know, make it work with a way that actually works for that community too. I mean, that's yeah. the other interesting thing from the Detroit thing and the and the stories we hear. It's it's really important to, to have communities be defining for themselves what they want this resilience to look like. Like I could I can talk from an academic sense and say, well, here's how it's defined and here's the seven metrics or, you know, mm-hmm. something to measure resilience. But what people actually themselves, what they think resilience means and what it means to them and how they would like to, what how they'd like to see their community change is really is it, it may be completely different and it it's really important to, I think to start from there to start from sort of where people are in their community and what they want to see for themselves and their own community, because otherwise it's kind of an external pressure to say, oh, well, let's help you adapt or let's help you do mm-hmm. do these different things. But really empowering communities is a big part of not only building resilient communities, but also building a future that's equitable. So um,
0: how, how do you go out there um, and make connections with people in the communities? I mean, this must be difficult. I mean, how do you even, how do you find people? How do you connect with them?
1: Well, it's fun, but it's difficult. It's time consuming. I mean, I would say it's not fast. And and, and that's because trust is a, an important part. You can't just go and like do a, you know, a month project. And go, oh, okay. I'm going to go into your community and build resilience with you, you know, mm-hmm. as an outsider, it just, you know, it takes literally years sometimes to get to know a community, help, um, understand what the needs are, what people are really thinking about. I also think too, there's a part of it that's tough for academics to do, which is, um, it requires sometimes stepping outside of your comfort zone and and being an advocate for that community, you know, which, which, you know, sort of not usually trained as advocates in, Mm -hmm. in academia, we're very data-driven, we're sort of very, you know, you know trying to be objective even though we know objectivity is a little bit not real, not real but the important thing is to build relationships that where people with people who trust who can trust you and you trust them and so forth sometimes it isn't possible though to build that relationship necessarily directly so sometimes it's like there's a way of working with community groups who then go and work in their own community so kind of that that chain of connection is really helpful because It's hard, like you say, like we have like a group of, you know, five people or, you know, a few people at the university working on this. We can't possibly reach all the communities that might need to be working on resilience. So we have to think about how to kind of scale that up or how to work with the community groups that are in the community already and then have them work with people actually out there. So it's not it's not actually all of us. It's not necessarily all of us directly working with every individual person. Sometimes it's trying to think how you how you can amplify sort of your knowledge and the work you can do with working with um, trusted partner groups.
0: Yeah, I know. This is great. I mean, this is what we do best as a species is, <laughs> I mean, aside from destroy things, is uh, organize ourselves into groups and then have nodes and networks and webs and all this kind of stuff for better and
1: for worse, I suppose. We, we were studying this group of water managers in, you know, in Colorado to find out if they were adapting or how they were using scientific information to respond to drought and how they were changing their practices in their water management utility. And what we were finding is a lot of these very small towns and smaller, you know, areas with a kind of pretty small utility, maybe they have one person, you know, running their water utility. They all tend to trust, like there's certain people in their network that they'll call up and say, Hey, you know, what's the season going to look like? Or what are you seeing out of the snowpack this Mm -hmm. year? Or kind of trying to get that information from these nodes in the network. Mm -hmm. And those nodes are super important for disseminating this information more broadly to the smaller, you know, even not just smaller, but bigger as well. And so we, we were sort of saying at the end, like maybe organizations like mine at the university, we should be Thinking about identifying who are these nodes, who are these people who are going to have a wide reach and really trying to work with them so that they have the best knowledge that we can give about, you know, how climate's changing and how, you know, how to be thinking about this observation they're making about the snowpack. And then they can kind of pass that out to other people as they call in. And uh, like, it's, I think we found, I mean, this wasn't our term, other people have used this term, but like a community of practice, it's also who those people trust the most. Like they trust other water managers, people who've been through this, you know, they know how the risks, what the risks are. They know how to, how to manage their system. Me as an academic, I'm sitting here going, well, here's some knowledge I have, but I'm not on the line if I make a wrong decision about the reservoir and letting out the water, that's not, you know, I'm not making that decision. Mm-hmm. It's the water managers themselves that are making that decision. And so understanding that, you know, they are the ones who have to absorb the information, make the, make the call. And so there's a lot of trust between the water managers because they basically understand what, what the risks are and how to. It's a question of
0: time scale, right? So they're responding to you know so they have a short term response they're calling up the guy who knows about the snowpack but what you're offering them is inform- you know predictions and information about what's coming in over the next 5 years or 10 years or 40 years so mm. these are also slight two slightly different things
1: right yes it's a, it's like giving i think of it as giving the context sort of because people sometimes want to know well i mean we can't give actually a good prediction for next year's snowpack you know <laughs> it's just too mm-hmm too uncertain, really, Mm -hmm. but it's still a pretty hard science to predict what's going to happen next year Mm -hmm. with a particular variable, but we can place the pattern that they're seeing into this bigger context. You know, we Mm -hmm. can say, Hey, this pattern you're seeing is part of a larger trend. And yes, you might get another wet year, but on balance, you're going to get drier, you, you know, this atmosphere being thirstier, this, this temperature going up, there's just more water being held into the atmosphere and you're not necessarily, and your soils are going to get drier. You know, you're kind of going through this much drier time and the snowpack runoff will become less efficient. You know, so that's where we have, we have that kind of contextual knowledge that we can give to the water managers who are dealing with that call on this particular year. It helps them spread the information of like, again, planning for maybe some more storage, you know, maybe Mm -hmm. some more, efficiency method measures. Maybe you have more kind of water rights contracts that are, you know, can exercise an option on some extra water in a bad year, you know, creative ways to try to get through the shortages that could be happening more and more. And, and we're seeing a lot of that experimentation. I mean, people are just amazingly creative and, you know, have a lot of different ideas of how to get through this kind of thing. But it's something that I think they they still need that sort of sense that this is a real thing that is happening. And there's a physical explanation for it. It's not just a political statement. You know, there's still Mm -hmm. a lot of politics around climate change here. I think finally, it's getting ingrained that, no, this is actually a real thing. And we need to be thinking about how to adapt and how to make ourselves more resilient. Okay.
0: Yeah. I mean, I imagine there's a lot of resistance within the agriculture industry to changes to their water rights or to their water use. Um I mean because obviously they need to make money.
1: Yes, and and the 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 the, the thing with farmers and producers is they are, are totally aware <laughs> that the environment's changing. You know, they're really smart on the ground. They know their business, they know what they're seeing and like you say they're running a business. There's a lot of statements out here because because agriculture uses like 80% of the water. Cities are you know we could get better at being more efficient but overall we're a pretty small part of the consumption of water compared to agriculture especially cuz it's so dry here we have to irrigate quite a lot so yeah for 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 farmers ranchers producers who use irrigated agriculture water is life you know water is their business
0: are there also groups working on building or helping the agriculture adapt to climate change or building resilience into the agricultural system i mean i presume so
1: there are there are we We, in my group, we focus on um, like utilities, water utilities, cities, towns, that kind of area, uh, those kinds of um, stakeholders. But there's a whole different group that's funded out of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. They have a network of climate hubs. So the U.S. Department of Agriculture has like a nationwide um, network of these climate hubs located across the country. And we have one here in Colorado and they are working with producers, farmers, ranchers to figure out exactly what you're saying. Like, how do we build resilience in to our practices? And because they're USDA and because they have a, a long history of ag extension, extension is like when you have people embedded in the community who they're doing exactly what I, what I'm, I've been saying I'm doing, like, you know, trying to bring science to the community. And also bring questions back to the university to research. So Ag Extension has been doing this for 100 years now, where farmers say, hey, I've got this strange, you know, weevil, you know, eating my crops. What is this? How do I get rid of it? So forth. And the the researchers at the university will kind of research that and then bring that answer back. And so that exchange has been going on. Um, But they've now funded these climate hubs that are focused on tools and information and ways of helping producers cope with climate change. Um, just to give an example, there's this new tool that has come out. It's like a model combined with a with a vegetation prediction, sort of, and they call it grass cast. <laughs> so cool. like grass, grass cast <laughs> yeah. and the grass cast <laughs> is kind of like a forecast of what's the grass going to be like for your animals, like for ranchers in the next season. And um, it's cool because it's like kind of like a way of using that science, using new techniques and tools, but towards a, a product that really speaks to a particular group of people who really need that information. Right. And then they can
0: decide how many new cows or if they need to reduce the size of the flock or or flock herd. herd. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah.
1: Well, and they, and maybe even smaller decisions, like, you know, laying in more grain or, you know um, yeah. What, what kind of, yeah. Stocking rates and and things like that. And they're also studying actually on the sustainability side that USDA has like a bunch of really cool plots of um, different kinds of range stocking, you know, different amounts of cows on the, on the um, each type of field or, you know, what, what kinds of feeds, you know, like they just have a lot of ways that they're looking scientifically at how to best support farmers and bring them into the, you know, bring them best practices um, that can help. And, and farmers get also, they get a lot of information too, from, from private sector companies, you know, Mm -hmm. people that are selling, there's amazing um, tools out there that can beam back like data and mm-hmm. sensing, you know, sense information mm-hmm. about the state of your field, about like the weather, mm-hmm. you know, how's, what does this say? When should you put your fertilizer on? So it doesn't run off mm-hmm. as much, you know, trying to be more sustainable. Um, there's a lot of really cool innovations in that area, but, the, but there is this one, this one focus on the climate, on um, these climate hubs. That's really cool. And specifically on that question you were asking.
0: So it's amazing that there's this level of trust between farmers and scientists I wouldn't have expected that I mean I guess
1: particular kind of scientists so these are people who work they are ranchers themselves often like I know one of these folks he's a PhD studies rangeland science lives has his own ranch and does a lot of science with ranchers I really think that's going to the trust issue of they're willing to work with him because he's one of them you know he's Mm -hmm. a rancher he knows what they're at he's not trying to convince them they shouldn't be doing what they're doing. You know, he's really on their side and it's different than if I were to go and say, you know, Hey, can (laughs) I work with you? I mean, there's communities where I'd be more, you know, maybe, you know, some of the communities that we work with and have a long relationship with, I'd be more trusted, but the ranch communities, that relationship has been built over many years with this agricultural extension and these rangeland scientists that have been in the community.
0: Wow, so this is I see this is really really important to have this kind of a complex network. Um, yes, because yeah. because you can't because we're facing this massive massive crisis that's coming at us faster and faster each year. There isn't time to build trust where there isn't already a relationship of trust. You do have to somehow already find people who who you can liaise through in order to exactly. get information flowing.
1: Exactly. You, you hit the nail on the head. It's really, and we have a, the cool thing, again, I, I feel like with this little area that we work in here, I'm more part of this one organization that's funded by NOAA. It's a, it's, it's a, used to be called the RESA. Now it's called the Climate Adaptation Partnership Program. But so there's one organization, there's this USDA Climate Hub, also in the same area. And there's another organization Funded by um, the Department of Interior, so they run like the national parks and the BLM, big big landowner that's kind of in the West, and they focus on supporting um, ecosystem resource managers, people who are managing, you know, wilderness and and uh, park service, you know, other kinds of kind of entities within their mandate. And the cool thing is, we have like retreats or meetings like every six months to basically kind of share notes <laughs> you know across these three entities knowing who's around you and who is got a network connection with some people or could help like if a farmer came into us and said hey i really want to find out more about climate change for my area i would refer them to the usda climate hub because they've got that information there i don't need to reinvent that wheel you know but i the fact that i know that they exist means i can direct that person more quickly and efficiently and keeping those networks up and that web of connection, it's like not just one community of practice. It's like how these communities of practice kind of connect and and kind of making sure that you're aware that you're not an island. You know, you're you're actually more of like a nerve center sort of thing, you know, where you're you're like doing your thing and then you've got these connections out to these other hubs that are doing their thing and making sure that we are just kind of coordinated so we kind of can share information and be more efficient. But the trust part, exactly, the trust part is built over many years. So not trying to reinvent that, but really trying to reach out to kind of partners that have had that trust already built.
0: I really love this because, you know, everyone always thinks you know about climate change oh, the technology is going to save us but but technology alone can't do this right you have to have the people working together and communicating and that just isn't talked about nearly enough i think but you know you don't see it so much in the newspapers for instance
1: we, we love tech. We love technology and gadgets and investors love it. And it, it is needed. It's cool. And whether it's resilience or energy transition, you know, we need physical infrastructure. We need objects, you know, to be built and things like that. But uh, like, just like you said, it it is not possible without the human capital, basically the social capital, we call it like social capital, because it like um, other kinds of capital, social capital is these, these networks, these relationships, the trust that people have, anything that's basically like sort of an intangible, but it's very real because it actually allows um, a society to function. Yeah, it, it allows you to actually know that you have trust in the guy installing your new heat pump, that that's mm-hmm. going to work, you know, or we need to be accelerating basically the human side of these of this transition and, and building resilience. Um, Like I was mentioning about the community of practice, you know, it's not just building a reservoir or something like that for water. You know, it's not just building a new transmission line or a new solar panel farm or something like that. I mean, you can't just go build those things, right? You have to have people willing to let you build those things and to help site them and make sure they're not going to have negative effects, make sure they're not impinging on disproportionately impacted communities, all these different things. What is that? That is social capital. That is like relationships. That is trust. That is making sure we are on the same page about, you know, or we get to the same page anyway, about making sure that our way forward is working for everyone and is actually going to do what we hope it will. You know, you, you, you can, it's like, if, I mean, I think in the seventies, remember we had the oil shock, Mm -hmm. there was this oil crisis and there was all this interest in things like solar panels and things that would heat your water on your roof and different Mm -hmm. things like that. But, you know, it kind of fell by the wayside in the 80s. You know, it was like suddenly like, no, we're going to do something different or whatever. That's one of the things I worry about is without everybody sort of coming along and understanding why things are important and understanding, basically trusting that this is all for the greater good and that we're all in this together and having some say and how things evolve and how they kind of get carried out. Like the farmers and this, this thing about water and sharing it, you know, with cities, it, it is all about trust because otherwise, you know, the, the farmers that can tell you they are um, nervous about this trend of trying to give more water to the cities mm-hmm. because what's to stop the politics in the future saying, well, sorry, people mm-hmm. are going to not have any water you need to just give it over yeah. you know i mean obviously we have laws hopefully that doesn't just happen but you can imagine there's some resistance to experimenting in this way if they feel like they're just going to mm-hmm. lose you know that this is a losing proposition so i think we need to really understand this human dynamic to this the behavior part of it the just the relationship part of it and the trust part of it the, these are in, essential ingredients to either resilience or sustainability transitions in general. It's really the social side. I mean, that's kind of what I've been really moving towards. Um, I mean, you and I met, you know, in biology, kind of like studying biological systems. And I've really moved towards the social side, the social systems and like how humans, you know, work together to actually get things done. And tech is important. Infrastructure is important, but oh my goodness, people are really important. They're the most important to make sure that it actually works for everybody and actually can can happen, I think.
0: Noting that at this moment in American history is not one of the peak moments of mutual trust. And so this this dealing with climate change, this could either be what brings us all back together, or, or we're actually all just going to utterly fail because because maybe we just can't work together on the level that needs to happen. I mean, uh, does this keep you up at night, or are you <laughs> optimistic that that we'll
1: manage it? I do think you you've hit you know you've hit a really important issue, which is what what future are we going to choose? You know, are we are we able to talk about this together? Are we going to just go into our corners and say the other side's wrong, and you know, there's no way to talk together? The cool thing is, like, I I, I know a couple groups out there that are working literally on this issue of bipartisan cooperation and depolarization of the issue of climate change. I mean, fundamentally, the issue of climate change should not be a partisan issue, right? It should, it's it's a kind of a fact of how hap- it's happening. And the debate is all about what we do about it, right? That's where mm-hmm. you really get a lot of struggle. And I think that's what politics is. You know, I mean, you got to mm-hmm. kind of work things out through disagreement and so forth. I see a lot of path forward for looking for policies. I have a colleague, Matt Burgess, he works on this with his student, looking for the kinds of policies that have bipartisan support. There's actually strong bipartisan support for renewable energy, for example. There's strong bipartisan support for trying to move more quickly towards EVs and, and renewable energy in general. Those things are, I mean, it seems like very polarized, but when you like do a poll, Um, In Republicans and Democrats, it's actually, there's actually quite a lot, more than two thirds, you know, support quite a lot of policies that are very conducive for moving forward on climate change. I also have some other colleagues up at Colorado State University, and they are working on bringing together politicians from different parties in workshops, in convenings to sort of hear each other and talk to each other. What will work in your state? What will work in your state? You know, what's a policy that can actually work with the constituency that we have? It, the economics are in our favor right now for renewable energy, for example. It's a lot cheaper than coal and oil and natural gas and the alternatives. And so, and nuclear. You know, and nuclear. That's an incentive right now, right? But, you know, you need transmission lines, you need citing. Mm. you know, there's a lot of things, again, that's sort of social trust that you need. But there's a lot of really good places to collaborate across the aisle across the, the parties that we have. And I think it's actually happening more than we know that it's happening more than we hear about in the news. <laughs> um, unfortunately, the news, you know, it it tends to really amplify the, like the disagreement in mm-hmm. our society, I think what's happening behind the scenes. I have more faith in that in terms of actually muddling our way through this and actually getting to things to happen and go forward. I don't deny there is a lot of, there is a lot of partisan rancor about it. There is a lot of argument. There's a lot of really intractable people who, who are not going to come around, you know, or see that it's worth even talking to the other side on this. But I, so I do think it's an opportunity. I think it's It's really important to pay attention to the issue as you framed it. Even like to say, "Hey, how can we work together on this?" To not just discard the other side, because what you get if you just discard the other side, whether depending whatever side you're on, then it's a whiplash. It's like, "Oh, here we have a policy. Oh no, we're gonna get rid of it next time. Okay, here we're gonna have it. Okay, no, we're gonna get rid of it next time." It's not a fast way to get anywhere. (laughs) So I mean, we don't, we can't afford the time. Like you said, we can't afford to be Slow on this anymore. We have to get more efficient, and so I think looking for these policies that are, you know, that are reasonable for both sides, that both sides can see some benefit in it. And again, the economics is helping us right now. That will be the way forward. And and I guess I'll just say one other thing that I think, and I, I'm not sure if people would agree with me on this, but sometimes people say, you know, we have to all agree on the physics of climate change or you know the the details of the science of climate change and. I don't actually think that's true. I think most people there's been a lot of polarization around the science of mm-hmm. climate change. Is the science true? Is the science not true and so forth. Personally, I think we can kind of go to solutions. We can say, "Hey, whatever you think about climate change, what about renewable energy? It's cheap. It's clean. You can build it right here in your state." You know, I mean, there's like some benefit to that. And and the other thing I've learned from working with stakeholders and all my colleagues that do is sometimes people come around to that issue later. You know, if you start with the most controversial way of framing something and the most difficult way of talking about, you know, like you have to agree with me on the way this is framed as your starting point, you don't Mm. get very far in the conversation. I I have this phrase I use a lot with, with talking with people. I say, you know, we meet people where they are. And there may be certain topics i don't talk about with people at all you know Mm -hmm. politics and things but i try to figure out where do we have some common ground where do we have some overlap you know what do you care about what is your community about what do you care what's hurting in your Mm -hmm. who's hurting in your community how's the drought going for you you know what 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 is your business about like what kinds of things are you trying to do in your business you know, bring up these things that show you actually have an interest in this person and you want to actually connect with them and understand what issues they're dealing with in their business. And they're honestly a lot more likely to then talk to you about what's going on and to actually see, oh, maybe there is some common ground here. Maybe there are some things we can agree about. You know, no land manager, no farmer Wants to degrade their land. They all want their land to be healthy, their soil to be healthy, their their farm to be productive, their life, you know, to be to be good, their kids to be, you know, to be healthy, Mm -hmm. all of those things. There's so much to be in agreement about. And so I feel, again, I'm, I'm probably sounding optimistic again, but I, I feel like there are ways to go about this and there are several groups exploring, you know, how to have these conversations in ways that are respectful and empathetic of the other side, you know, that what people are going through and that, that is a way perhaps to then find some common ground. And, and there are policies, like I said, who, you know, both sides think are pretty good to do. So I think we need to look at the wins, you know, look at those mm-hmm. things we can kind of win on. And then, you know, if there's some tough things down the road, we have a little bit of wins and a little bit of trust built to Mm -hmm. then go to the more harder things.
0: Oh, but that's good. So that's a, I mean, that's a good shift away from arguing for the sake of arguing to actually just working to get stuff done. Well, I am relieved to hear that there are people like you out there (laughs) working on this, not willing to accept that it's all going to be bad, but actually rolling the sleeves up and doing what it takes to end up in a better place. For everyone. Thank you very much for talking to me. I've learned a lot and really enjoyed this and I
1: appreciate your time. Well, thanks so much for um, interviewing me. It was so great to talk to you and um, really enjoyed the conversation. It was really lovely. Thanks so much for calling me up and having this conversation, having me on the show. And that brings
0: us to the end
1: of episode
0: nine. Thank you for listening to Solar Punk Presence, a series embedded within the Solar Punk Futures podcast. Written, hosted, and produced by Christina Della Rocha and Ariel Kroon. This podcast is a part of Solarpunk Magazine, which is published by Android Press, which is located on kalapuya Ilihi, the traditional indigenous homeland of the Kalapuya people. Today, descendants are citizens of the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde Community of Oregon and the Confederated Tribes of the Siletz Indians of Oregon the opening and closing music for solar punk presence is water cooler gang by monkey warhol and is available for use under the creative commons attribution 4.0 international license so thank you again for listening and until the next episode stay solar punk